Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Good morning, everyone. You're all looking bright-eyed and bushy-tailed this morning. Woohoo! Aren't we excited? Daylight savings. Man, it's just like the world is moving on. Everybody's ready to go. No, it's awful, right? It's terrible. No one likes it. We're all late today. Everything is terrible, and the world is falling apart because we had to lose an hour of sleep, which is just, whose idea was this? Anyway, we soldier on. I lament to uh, tell you that you might have come and wasted your time here this morning, all right? I don't normally do this. I normally am like the biggest guy repping the brand, you know, out here, like Dwell Church. It's good for you today. It's healthy for you today. Could be a waste of time, though. Just warning you going to be a weird one, okay? Uh, Normally, in a sermon, we talk about these three things called head, heart, and hands. It's kind of a simple way to do it. Uh, Or you could think about like a good sermon should give you something to think about, something to feel, and something to do. Now, some sermons end up heavier in one direction or another. Some preachers end up heavier in one direction or another. Uh, You might not have all three of those. Some texts even sort of end up heavier in one way or another. This week, though, uh, it's all going to be about head. It's all about thinking, all right? It's all about uh, changing the way that you think. And it is technically a bad sermon, right? Like here at Dwell Church, we like to, uh, we like to bring up other people uh, to come and preach. Uh, we like to even help develop other preachers in whatever way that we can. And this is a sermon that if someone told me about this, I would say, that's a bad idea. Don't do this. So I'm flying a little close to the sun here, okay? And it is not a sun of excitement, cutting edge, what's he about to say, kind of flying close to the sun. It's more like this is going to be crazy boring. So uh, what I'm trying to say is buckle up, get excited, first off, for whatever is about to happen. Uh, And second off, uh, this is the reason why we celebrate Sabbath every single week and why you come here every single week to Dwell Church and have uh, a different type of sermon, a different experience. We walk through the text because not every sermon that you hear is going to be a life-shaping, life-changing, life-altering kind of thing. What's cool about that is that for somebody in the room, that could be a possibility, right? That they could actually come in here, hear this bunch of gibberish I'm about to talk about, and uh, in spite of losing an hour of sleep, walk out of here a completely different, changed, and completely different person. Uh, the reason why I say that is because, not just because I lost an hour, so I'm a little salty today. It's because uh, having that expectation that every single week should be like, you know, something that just crushes you and you walk out of here just like I'm going to change everything about my life actually leads to a lot of unhealth and leads to a lot of disappointment and a lot of frustration. So uh, what I hope for today is that in learning a little bit more about who God is and understanding him better, uh, that we might be changed people. And if you're like me uh, and you look back on your life, at least for me now, I really think this probably breaks down for all like three different types of people, head, heart, and hands, at least for me, Most of my most profound life change has been as a result of Jesus changing the way that I think about him uh, more than someone telling me how to act in relationship to Jesus and more than someone changing the way that I feel about Jesus. So I'm hopeful and prayerful that today uh, the Holy Spirit can actually do that through what we're going to do. Today we are going to talk about 10 definitions, 10 phrases, 10 words. I'm just going to define them. We're barely even walking through the text. All ten of these are found through the text. But these are like ten things that you need to know. Um, And I am going to tell you a lot of stuff you may already know. But I also hope and I believe that everyone in this room can learn something today. I learned a lot in preparing this. Hopefully there is something that you can take away that you will say, man, I didn't know that that was true. I have never heard of that before. I'm hoping also that in better understanding the story of God, we can better understand who he is. And thus that will change the way that we live. Uh, I'm hoping that the Holy Spirit through this can convict and sanctify us through our minds that thus then will change the way that we feel and the way that we act. Uh, And I'm hopeful also that you sort of give me a little bit of grace that I'm going to share with you what we can know, but also recognize some things that we can't know. And all of this is centered around this idea of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you guys were listening to Cash, right? Like very seldom does someone get up here and read this scripture and they say, hey, there's something that you can do that's not forgivable right? Like that should be a little terrifying, right? Coming from Jesus, the one who's like, oh, I'm going to forgive everything. Oh, if somebody slaps you in the face, turn the other cheek as well. 
Uh, I'm going to die on the cross to forgive you of all of your sins. This is that same Jesus that then says, hey, this one thing is not forgivable. But before we can even get to that, we have to get through nine other definitions. No, wait, there's only nine. Okay, so we have, it's just, uh, we have to get through eight to nine. So for those of you who are counting down. Anyway, is anybody excited for this? No. Okay, I've given you the worst intro of all time. I'm sorry. If you want to leave, I would not be offended. I'm considering it as well. But here we go. First, the son of David. This is the word uh, that the people who were seeing Jesus were saying. They're asking themselves a question in verse 23. Can this be the son of David? So the son of David is the messianic descendant of David, Israel's greatest king. So David was the greatest king in all of Israel's history, a man after God's own heart. The people wanted a king. Uh, if you're in my small group, we've been stuck in 1 Samuel for about 12 years now. And so we are building up to this point where these people, right, they're like, God, we want a king. God's like, that's not going to be good for you. And they're like, no, but we still want one. He's like, fine, you can have one. He gives him one. This guy Saul turns out to not be so great, not a great king. He failed. And so God gave them David because he still loved them, which has some sort of beautiful symmetry to it if you think about it. The first king was like to show them how faulty they were in expecting and wanting a king. The second king was like, I know you wanted something bad, but I'm going to turn it into something good. And that's what David was. Jesus is actually a direct descendant of this David. And a representation of him today, or um, of him during that time. I think that you'll see today that God actually loves sort of rhyming the story that he is telling like this, okay? So if you think about it, that God like tells this story throughout all of humanity. And if you're looking, especially in these connections from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there are shadows, there are reflections, there are rhymes of what is happening in the Old Testament, happening in the New. Which should tell us now, living post-New Testament... We should be looking for the ways that God continues to rhyme even in our stories today. David uh, was there almost as an overture, giving us some of the musical themes of who Jesus would one day be so that we might be familiar with the melody when it starts up. So when the true song comes, we're already prepared to be blown away. David was the best king that Israel ever had, but he was really there to show us Jesus, right? We see this other places in the Old Testament too. Adam was the first man, but he was just a shadow of the new and better man, Jesus. Moses was the liberator from slavery and the giver of the law. Jesus is the liberator of slavery to sin and the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the new and better Melchizedek, for those of you guys who are around for the Better is Coming series through Hebrews, right? So Jesus is this constant reminder. You could go all throughout the Old Testament. Jesus is like the fulfillment of everything that all of the great Old Testament characters were trying to be. So I want you to realize what is happening right here when people are looking at Jesus, casting a demon out of a man, and they say, is this a son of David? Is this the son of David? The prophets told us someone would come that would be a descendant of David, and can this Jesus be that man? David was a man after God's own heart. He was a poet warrior who led God's people into battle, into worship. He wrote most of our Psalms and also killed Goliath in battle. He believed and trusted God. He ushered in a season of prosperity in un that was unparalleled in ancient Israel. But imagine what he could have done if he was not a faulty human being. Like imagine if David was actually a perfect person. See, that's what the people that were standing around Jesus were imagining in this moment. They're saying, can this be the son of David? Can this be the son of David? Can, be, can this be the one who is like David but actually better? Imagine if David wasn't an adulterer, a murderer, a poor father, whatever else that he was as a broken and faulty human being. Imagine what a better David could do. And thus enter Jesus, the son of David. The next term that we have to define is probably one that you're even less familiar with. It is Beelzebul, the demonic entity believed to be the representative of Satan. And as you see in the text, uh, the prince of demons. Now it literally translates to Lord of the house. It's kind of a lame name, I think, you know, for a demon. But anyway, uh, it translates to the Lord of the house. It's actually a derivative from Baal Zebub, which was a localized form of Baal. If you're around uh, when we were talking about judges, we were talking about Baal a lot during that time. Uh, he was kind of this, like, chief idol for the people that were living in the promised land before the God, God's people got there. Uh, and this word, Baal-zebub, translates directly to Lord of the Flies, possibly because of the sort of flies that would gather around all of the very graphic and uh, kind of 
dark worship that was happening around Baal, right? So they would sacrifice a bunch of animals to him, thus a bunch of flies. You guys are dialed in so far to the fly talk. All right, anyway, uh, Lord of the house, actually calling him Beelzebub, maybe a subtle dig at Jesus here, saying that he is the Lord of the house of Satan, which is why this is why Jesus claps back in this way, okay? This will help you better understand why he uses this particular language. Remember, Lord of the house. All right, let's start in 25. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. You see how often Jesus uses two words there? The first one is house, and the second one is kingdom. And he's kind of like tying them together. And he's saying, I am not Lord of the house. God's kingdom is actually coming upon you, right? I am not Beelzebub, your Lord of the house. I am Lord of my own house, and it is the kingdom of God, and it is coming upon you. So what Jesus here is saying is, I am not this Beelzebub that you think I am. I don't know if you even noticed, too, he makes a subtle dig. We have evidence to suggest that Pharisees' sons during that time, at least maybe whoever he was talking to, were people that would travel around and cast out demons. They were kind of like traveling miracle workers, right? And so Jesus here is saying, like, if you're going to come at me asking how I am doing this, you also have to put your sons on trial as well, and they are going to judge your thoughts and your motives in all of this. And Jesus is saying, I am not from Beelzebul. That doesn't even make any sense. Why would I be casting out demons by the prince of demons? Why would Satan be against himself? That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I am not the Lord of that house. I am actually Lord of the kingdom. And he takes this house analogy a step further to say, I have bound up this strong man, who is Satan, and plundered his goods, these people who have had a demon possession, and soon he will have total control over what Satan thinks that he controls over this house. Jesus will own it all. Which leads us to our next point, Satan, or literally the accuser. It's a title given to the antagonist of God. Uh, it's interesting to think about this. We think of like Satan as sort of like, you know, the, the devil's proper name, right? But really it is actually a title. It's not like a, a name that someone would necessarily call him. Uh, it comes from the Hebrew word ha-satan, which means the Satan. It means the accuser. Uh, he's only mentioned by the name Satan in three different stories in the Old Testament, but he's also called the snake in the garden or the monster in Job or in some of the prophecies or in some of the prophets. And in the New Testament, this term is transliterated to satanos and is combined with the word uh, that is used interchangeably with it called diablos, which we translate as devil. He's also referred to as the serpent and the beast and the enemy. He's been given power over this world, uh, particularly over non-believers. Uh, he is in every way opposed to God, and his only goal is destruction and mayhem. He wants to alienate people from God however he can, and he wants to drive a wedge between God and his creation. He has no interest in fighting fair. He will lie, kill, and tempt and try to achieve his goals, but he is not all-powerful. He's limited by God as to what he can do, and God has given us the Holy Spirit to be able to confront uh, and fight against his advances. And the best part is, with all of this, because I know it can get kind of like spooky to talk about all of this kind of stuff, the best part is we know what is going to happen in the end. The book of Revelation tells us that Satan does not win, that the accuser does not come out on top. Paul even reminds us as believers in Romans 16, 20, that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, talking to the people of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. The important thing to realize is that while Satan is real, Satan is someone that should scare us, that Satan does have certain powers and authority even in this place, that he is not someone who cannot be conquered. He is not someone that God has not already beaten. God has already won. He's already defeated Satan on the cross. And one day when the kingdom of God comes into full fruition, that victory will be fully realized. I know that was a lot in there. I rolled right through it. Rolled right through some of the most complex and interesting things that people have reservations about Christianity for, right? 
You know, it makes sense when you get up here and you're like, oh, yeah, Jesus wants us to be a good person, and it'd be nice if we could go to heaven when we die. It gets a little, like, Lord of the Rings-esque when I start talking about, like, a great accuser that is, you know, immortal and living and fighting God and all of this stuff, right? Like, it gets a little bit weird. But I think it's important for us to think about. There is no scenario uh, where you're following Jesus and you're able to just very easily cherry-pick the things that he says for what you like and what you don't like, Right? It kind of makes you God more than makes Jesus God. And so if Jesus is going to talk about Satan and Beelzebul as if they are real entities, if he's going to warn you against them, if he's going to say to watch out for these people, then that is something that we should do and take very seriously. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, uh, this is particularly one of those things uh, that I think about as a pastor, as uh, difficult for people to like find the right resources to look into. Like, uh, if someone ever comes up and says, hey, man, I've been doing a lot of research into Satan, I'm like, okay, cool, uh, let's talk about that. Because there's no telling. Inter- the Internet is probably a very bad resource on this, right? In fact, most of our uh, resources that we bring to the table are not even, like, healthy pictures of Satan. Like, everything that we have about, like, you know, the forked tail and hooves and everything like that, that's more from Dante's Inferno than it is from the Scripture. So... Because of that, I would recommend two things to you if you are really interested, uh, if there's something that, if you have a question about Satan and his powers and what he does here on earth, I would recommend the book Evil and the Justice of God by N.T. Wright. Uh, And there's also a pretty good book uh, that would be a good reference, and it's called The Bible. So I would highly recommend that. I don't get any sort of kickback for that. Uh, This is not like a podcast ad. This is not, the Bible did not fund this sermon. So uh, yeah, I would highly recommend checking into that. Here Jesus basically lets us know, I'm not with Satan. Satan can't fight Satan. If I was with Satan, I would be doing the things that Satan does. Instead, I am actually casting out his demons. I am actually setting this man free from the authority of Satan. And because of that, Jesus says that the kingdom of God has come upon you, which brings us to our next definition. The kingdom of God, the recognized rule and reign of Jesus over all things. If you've been a part of this Matthew series, then I have talked about the kingdom of God many, many, many times. Jesus here is saying that if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's verse 28. This idea of the kingdom of God was central to everything that Jesus was doing and saying. Uh, Matthew brings it out even more fully than any of the other gospel writers. And here he is saying that there is someone who is casting out demons. And I remember, uh, or if you remember, we talked about the kingdom of God a few weeks ago. And the way that you like see the kingdom of God coming about around you is when it intersects with our world. So right now, the rule and reign of Jesus over all things may not may be true, but it's not recognized. And because of that injustice still uh, permeates our world. Evil is still around us. But the kingdom of God is when that rule and reign is actually recognized over all things, and justice reigns supreme, goodness reigns supreme. And because of that, there would be no demon possessions in the kingdom of God. Does that make sense, right? Like, I don't know whose conception of heaven there may be. We have a lot of bad ideas about it, you know, with like harps and clouds and all that nonsense. But it'd be, you'd be really far off if you were like, and also demon possessions, right? We don't believe that that would be the case. So what Jesus is saying here is you saw that demon get cast out. That is because the kingdom of God has come upon you. One little break in the the gap and the divide between heaven and earth. That in this moment, this demon being cast out of this man is actually an evidence of the kingdom of God around you. You can actually take part in this kingdom of God coming about as well. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer, uh, may it be on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see the kingdom of God come to life in the people around us. We want to see that change our communities, change our own lives. And the kingdom of God can break through in miraculous and strange ways. It's also both now and not yet. We're sort of going to go into some, like, you know, theology 101 kind of stuff here today. One of the most important things to understand about the kingdom of God is that it is simultaneously now and not yet. Which means that the kingdom of God has already been ushered in. It has already been begun. That, in fact, that Jesus' death on the cross 
uh, that it was solidified the victory for the kingdom of God. You can think about it like a marriage, right? So you get engaged to be married, but you're not officially married until your actual marriage. And so uh, I think that's actually why in the book of Revelation, you see that like uh, everything builds up to this culmination in the marriage supper of the lamb. That is the lamb. That is the full culmination of the kingdom of God. And so we live in this very strange time. So the kingdom of God has already come about. Jesus has already won this victory. We see little pieces of it break through as we see him casting out a demon here, but it has not been fully realized. That is why evil still exists. That is why brokenness, that is why uh, tears and harm and pain and death all still exist. We live in this time of the now and the not yet. And the reason why that's important is because it should make us long for that not yet. We should be gratefully uh, or hopefully awaiting what Jesus is going to bring about in that not yet when he finally brings his kingdom fruition. And it should also make us very frustrated, very frustrated with the evil and pain and death and suffering that exists in our world. That is what it means to live in the now and the not yet. The most interesting definition, at least for me, this uh, past week in doing this research was the son of man. Son of Man. It was a prophetic title used by Jesus to show that he is both fully human and fully God. Son of Man was a common title used by prophecies in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel, for instance, it is used 93 times. It was also used in some books that we don't keep as a part of our Bible now, but we know that were very important to the Jewish people of Jesus' time uh, that they were using very often. So Jesus is using some language that they were like ready to accept, language that they knew readily at hand. It was commonly used to refer to a Messiah, a Redeemer, one with authority, but in its strictest sense, it literally just means the human being, right? Like son of man, that's kind of a, uh, that doesn't really say much to you. In fact, there's actually, as with many things and multiple points throughout this sermon, I'm resisting doing Seinfeld jokes, but there's this one where like they were talking about son of Sam, who was like the serial killer. And uh, Kramer is like, I've come up with a new idea, a new name for a serial killer. You could call it son of dad. It's kind of a catch-all, right? Like, that's basically what this is. I know we're looking for some sort of deeper meaning, like son of man. It means a person who is a progeny of a human being, right? A person is basically a shorthand that you can use for this. But here's what I want you to recognize. So you could say that it is a human being, but really the title means the human being. Check this out from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. This is one of the times uh, when someone in the Old Testament references the Son of Man. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, the clouds of heaven. There came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus then is claiming this title for himself, this son of man title. Remember, he referred to himself this way. The ancient of days is the father, God the father. So he's the one that gives to Jesus dominion over everything forever. And I want you to take a second and just try and wrap your mind around why people would be shocked that Jesus would say this. These are their their histories, their prophecies. This is what they were waiting for. This is what they were looking for. And all of a sudden, some guy shows up and he says, oh yeah, all of that's actually about me. I'm that son of man. This is why C.S. Lewis uh, famously sort of comes up with this idea that you have to do something with Jesus that is either a liar, a lunatic, or he should be your Lord. And it comes from passages like this, where it's very difficult to look at Jesus and be like, hey, I really like where you say that, like, love your neighbor thing. That makes a lot of sense. Jesus, I really like that thing where you say you're going to forgive me of all of my sins and I get to go to heaven. And then he shows up, and he's saying, like, all of this very, like, humiliating kind of stuff, right? Like, you should turn the other cheek. You should love your neighbor. You should self-sacrifice. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins. So he's sort of, like, making himself lowly. He even calls himself gentle and lowly as, and, as it pertains to the people that follow him. And then... He says that on top of all of that stuff where I'm showing you how humble and lowly I am, also I am that son of man that you've been hearing about. I am the human being. I am the long-awaited king of the universe. It eliminates the option for Jesus just to be a good moral teacher. 
He can't be like a Gandhi kind of figure. No, it leaves him with the only option of being a crazy person. Right? Like, think of a wise man, someone that you like like reading their quotes or something like that. You can think of, like, Martin Luther King Jr. or Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin. Would you still quote them if they also said they were supposed to be the king of the universe? I don't think so. Like, what if Benjamin Franklin was like, I'm the greatest human being that's ever lived? He would cast out all of those silly sayings. A penny saved is a penny earned. No, you're a psychopath, Mr. Franklin, right? Like, we would not listen to any of that. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that you're like Jesus, or I mean, Jesus is saying, love your neighbor. And if you don't sort of also buy into this idea that he is the son of man, the truest human being, then you have to accept the idea that he is a lunatic. He's a crazy person. Here's what else Jesus says about the Son of Man just in the book of Matthew. This is not even all of the instances of Son of Man in the book of Matthew. It's not even all the instances in all the Gospels. He says this in Matthew 9, 6. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And when the Son of Man comes in glory, the sort of not yet that we talked about, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. If you want more, you can just go to a website that I'm going to recommend that I actually use all of the time. It's called Bible Gateway. Uh, I have, if you've been over to my house, far too many Bibles. They're just hidden in little nooks and crannies all over the place. I sort of have an obsession and I collect them. I also have uh, hundreds of dollars, maybe even thousands of dollars worth of biblical software on my computer that I use to like do sermons. And I'll tell you, the one thing that I like at least use once every time that I'm prepping a sermon is a website called Bible Gateway, where you can type in the preferred Bible version that you have and then punch into the search bar one random thing, one phrase, uh, one set of words. And so this week I punched in the words son of man and found that they come up with 356 times that those words were used in scripture. Now you have to do a little bit of sorting to find when someone was just referring to someone who's a son of someone. Uh, but basically, uh, some little resource like that, if you want to find out more of what this is, that's an easy way to do it. Jesus was the son of man that was to be placed in authority over all things, which leads us to one of the most crucial pieces of orthodox theology of all time, and a cool word that you can use to impress your friends, the hypostatic union. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I'm sure there's a better and snobbier way that I could say it. The hypostatic union, perhaps. Uh, that Jesus was fully God and fully man. I want you to think through this title, right? So here is God coming incarnate here on the earth. And how does he refer to himself? The son of man. The human being. That's who I am. What it tells us that he was God enough to have the power to control the universe, but also man enough to submit himself to it. That he was God enough to live a perfect life, but also man enough to take our place on the cross. That he was God enough to care about our suffering, but man enough to take them on himself. Jesus is the son of man. To change gears, the other sort of ideas that we have to grapple with this idea or in this passage all stem from the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity and the spiritual empowerer and transformer of the followers of Jesus. This one was the most difficult one. I had no idea how to make one bullet point on what the Holy Spirit is and just have a part of this sermon that is not going to be 12 hours long, I promise. So, I'm going to stick to this brief definition that I gave just to keep it uh, succinct. So, first off, he is a person. Jesus, in promising the Holy Spirit uh, to his disciples, referred to him as a him, not an it. Which I think is something that we get kind of hung up on. Probably even somewhere in this sermon, I've referred to the Holy Spirit as if it were not an actual person. But that is not the way that Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit. In promising his Holy Spirit to the, his uh, disciples, he says this in John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And it's important to think about the Holy Spirit as a person for two reasons. First, uh, he is not sort of abstract and shadowy. I know we call him the like Holy Ghost sometimes. And that makes him kind of like spooky and ethereal. Uh, but that is not the way that he reveals himself to us. No, God and his revelation of himself to us seems to go to great lengths to remind us that he is personal. 
He is a personal God. And this is all forms of God at the make of the Trinity. God the Father throughout the entire Old Testament is constantly revealing his personhood to us, right? He has emotions. Uh, he relates to human beings. He talks. He sort of lives and acts in time. Uh, this happens even more so at the revelation of Jesus or the coming of Jesus, the incarnation, Jesus actually takes on full personhood. He becomes a human being that's as personal as it gets. So why then do we assume when we think about the last member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, that he's just some sort of force, some sort of state of being, some sort of like non-practical, non-concrete thing? Why do we assume that he is a non-person? Which brings us to the second reason why it's important to remember that he is personal. That a person is someone that you can relate to. So a person is something that you can have, a, or someone that you can have a relationship to. It is not a state of being. It is not like a power that you just sort of tap into at some point. It is a person that deals with you, that relates to you. Second, the Holy Spirit empowers in Acts 1-8, just before the giving of the Holy Spirit, Jesus tells his people that they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That, in fact, they should wait and not move without him because they won't have the power yet. The Holy Spirit empowers the people of God to do miraculous things. And Jesus actually tells his disciples, this is one of the craziest things. You see this in John uh, chapter 16, that they will do, or John chapter 14, no, 16, that they will do even greater things than he did because they will have the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit fills up believers so that they might have words to say when they are speaking in front of people that they are intimidated by. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit might give us courage to do what God calls us to do. Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit is with us even when we are facing great adversity. The Holy Spirit empowers people to do miraculous things that seem supernatural to the people around them. And I believe that if we believed even half of the promises about the Holy Spirit in Scripture, that we wouldn't worry for anything. If we seriously took great stock of our lives and held them against the pro uh, promises about the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, we'd see a huge gap there in what we believe and how we actually live, or what we say that we believe in the way that we actually live. Third, the Holy Spirit transforms. The basic process of being a Christian of salvation is def can be defined as justification, sanctification, and glorification. Now I'm officially at the point where I'm defining small words with even bigger words, right? So here we go. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is the process by which Jesus justifies you on the cross. He takes your unrighteousness and exchanges it for his righteousness, thus making you just. You are justified in that moment. Glorification is the moment one day at death where you will be set free eternally from sin and unrighteousness. And what happens in between is the process that we call sanctification. And if you were here last week, we talked about sanctifying, make the Sabbath holy. That's the same sort of root word there. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing in and through you. It is a lifelong process by which the Holy Spirit helps you look more and more and more like Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit does. He transforms followers of Jesus that they might look more and more like him. He does this through conviction, which is where he shows us ways in which we are wrong and need to change. This word and this idea, conviction, takes on an interesting sort of taste in our mouths living in the year 2023. Uh, you have been told, just as I have been told, and even believe to some degree in our hearts, that if someone tells us that they, we are wrong in some way, that they are our enemies, uh, that really we can't do anything wrong because anything that we do is actually just a part of who we are, and that's what we should embrace. It's very difficult in our culture today to actually like be convicted, to allow yourself to be convicted. We have all of these excuses that we've been taught in our minds, right? Like, Oh, well, I did that because of my background, you know, my childhood, that's the reason why I did that thing. Uh, I did that because that's a part of my personality, like, I really shouldn't be held accountable for that. I was having a bad day, and I know I did something wrong. Uh, I really shouldn't have to, like, feel bad about myself, or really even just the idea there, like, feel bad about yourself, that is a negative thing, right? We only have negative feelings when it responds to feeling bad about yourself. Like, that's something that you, to be a good human being in the year 2023, need to get out of your way. Like, get it out of your life. You should not ever feel bad about yourself. 
And I don't have time to go into the difference between conviction and shame. There is a difference there. There are unhealthy emotions uh, that can bring you down, that can actually make you feel like you are not a valued child of God, and you need to chase those things away. God doesn't want you to have those things. But we cannot do that at the expense of conviction from the Holy Spirit. Because without conviction of the Holy Spirit, we will never grow. We will never change. We will never be sanctified. We're actually inhibiting the Holy Spirit's power to sanctify us every time that we are avoiding healthy and holy conviction from him. That can happen in multiple ways. It can happen from uh, a friend calling you out on something. It can happen from you reading something and being confronted with sin in your own life can happen uh, through a good discipling relationship. And I just want to end the Holy Spirit part of this thing with just this idea that that is something that we should be pursuing. It'll be very countercultural. You know, when we think about countercultural, we're thinking about winning these, like, huge battles against the ways that our culture disagrees with us. But what if Christians were actually known, not for all of their weird sort of cultural hot takes, but they were known as people who were looking for ways to find out that they were wrong so that they could be better? We're actually joyfully walking into seasons where we can be convicted of the ways that we have sinned against God and our fellow human beings so that we might look more and more like Jesus. Something to think about. Trinity, the doctrine of God in three, of one God in three persons. Now, this simple Christian doctrine is found nowhere explicitly in the Bible, but has largely been a part of every Orthodox version of Christianity since the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., Yep, A.D. I always get those confused. Anyway, uh, it is the idea that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all three in one. They are all individuals and all God. That no one is greater, no one is lesser. They are all, all at once. The Trinity defines what God is, but each of the persons of the Trinity define who God is. And this is one of those things that has classically been difficult for Christians and us as human beings to understand uh, we can come up with analogies all day. You've probably heard some of these, like the egg analogy, right? So like, oh, well, you know, the Holy Spirit is like the yolk, and then Jesus is the white, and then God is the shell. Or like the idea that like uh, I am one person, I am Josh, but I'm also a father, I'm also a son, I'm also a husband. Or even uh, dear St. Patrick, we have to talk about him since this is his big week, right? Like he didn't just invent green beer. Uh, he's actually famous for explaining the Trinity with a shamrock. So he's like walking around Ireland, chasing out snakes, which is a whole nother thing, right? I'm not going to get into that today. So he's like kicking snakes out of there. And he's also scooping up, picking up three-leaf clovers, not four-leaf clovers, because that would be a different Trinity entirely. And he's holding up the shamrock, and he's saying, like, here's the Trinity. Well, I'm sorry, St. Pat. Stick to the snakes. Stick to the green beer, because that is not right, right? Okay, like it is not pieces of a three-leaf clover. In fact, you could delineate all of those out. Those are leaves. You cannot do that with the Trinity, which makes it really, really confusing. And I think it's supposed to be confusing, right? It's a little bit of a paradox, really. We don't have any parallel for this, something that is simultaneously three di distinct and unique things, but also one singular thing. And here's why this type of thought is necessary. Here's why Christians have long held this belief. It's because it keeps us from ranking God alleviates us from the temptation to say, well, this is from God the Father, so it's better than from Jesus, or vice versa, right? We say like, oh, well, you know, they said that happened as a result of the Holy Spirit, not really like God the Father, so it's not like quite as good. That's just an, a, a thing that we would do to try and cherry pick what makes us feel better, maybe even avoid some conviction, right? It also allows for God's Son, Jesus, to also be God, Right? Like only the Trinity allows us to like hold those two ideas in perfect harmony in our minds. And this is another way that God uh, reveals himself to be personal to us, that he actually has a familial relationship with someone else in the Trinity, uh, namely Jesus, to say like he is his son. I think that is one of those like strange and confusing things that we might not even understand until we get to heaven, even if then, where it's like God gives us something so that we might understand and appreciate him better, but it's also larger than what our minds can contain, right? Like how can these, these three members of the Trinity be three in one, but then also be in father-son relationships? I think it is something that is confusing, but also beautiful for us. And finally, the Trinity is necessary because it reminds us that from the beginning, God existed in community and thus we should as well. 
In fact, I want you, if you get some time, to go back and look through the Genesis creation story. And you'll see there uh, that it says that God, man is made in our image. Let us make mankind in our image, is what the text says. It's a plural we. It's an us. That is in reference to the Trinity. From the very beginning, God existed in community. So it's very difficult then, I think, for Christians to uh, approach community living with other Christians and be like, no, that's not something really necessary from us. When all throughout Scripture, from the very first pages, God is sort of pummeling us with this idea that you need to be with other people. Even God is with others. He lives constantly in perfect and beautiful community, which is why the church is such a gift to us, that we might experience a taste of this community, just like he does. Finally, The last definition, I promise, I know you're all tired and you hate me and you're ready to go home. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Spirit. This is a willful decision to oppose and reject the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we've all been building towards. This is what the price of admission is all about. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will, or against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. This is serious. Jesus here refers to this as the only unforgivable sin. Now, I need to take a side note here, and I know this entire sermon has been a side note, but I'm going to take one side note from this to say you'll notice both here and everywhere else in Scripture that you'll never see committing suicide as an unforgivable sin. And yet that feels like a common belief that's held among people. In fact, there's some denominations and churches that hold that as a belief. What that, the reason why I think that comes from or pops up in Christianity is we think Or some people might think that if you commit suicide, you don't have a chance to ask for forgiveness and confession for your sin. Uh, So Jesus doesn't forgive it, and then you spend eternity separated from him. What that belief sort of shows in us is that it depends on us believing that we have to have all of our sins forgiven one by one by Jesus, which really means in some ways we're trusting in our own sinful record-keeping more than we're actually trusting in the power and forgiveness of Jesus. Right? Does that make sense? Like, you can't be held liable, or I'm hopeful that we don't have to be held liable to keep account for every single thing that we've done that is sinful, because odds are there are multitudes of them that we don't even know about. Like, you probably sinned this morning and didn't even, like, realize it and moved about with your day. Sins are not like doing your taxes, right? Like, you don't just have to show up and be like, here's exactly what it is, or else I'm going to spend eternity separated from Jesus, And if you getting into heaven or being forgiven depends on you asking specifically and individually for forgiveness, then we would all be in trouble for a lot. This should be as some relief, I hope. And and it's a weird thing. That's why I've sort of somewhat justified this, like, weird sermon on definitions, because when else do we get to, like, confront sort of false doctrine like this? But also because this is just an exceptionally harmful and painful thing to think and to say about other people. Someone suffering from whatever it is that would lead someone to committing suicide, uh, that even if they were a follower of Jesus, they are somehow now separated from him. Man, is that not just crushing to every other person that is in the sort of orbit of such an event? That's terrible. So that's not what Jesus says. So the good thing is we can cast that out of our mind and say, Jesus points out here there's only one unforgivable sin. It's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Now, to blaspheme is to speak slanderously about God, to speak against him, to be opposed to him in the way that you're talking about him. Now, Jesus is very specific about this. He even delineates members of the Trinity, right? So he says, like, not against the Son of Man, Jesus, but against the Holy Spirit, the Spirit that is working in and through him. And I think what he's doing here is saying, like, you can talk bad about Jesus all you want, but all of a sudden, when you start talking about the Holy Spirit working through Jesus, now you're sort of lumping in two members of the Trinity at the same time, right? Now you're sort of, in some ways, talking about all of us. 
just a few verses prior, he actually attached himself to the Spirit of or the Spirit, Holy Spirit, and the Father. Right? This is sort of the, where, where the Trinity comes together in this little passage that we're talking about. In Matthew twelve eighteen. If you remember from last week, Matthew quoted Isaiah to say, "Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen." This is God the Father speaking. My beloved, <clears throat> with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So Jesus here ties himself to the other two members of the, of the Trinity. And then he says, when you come at the Holy Spirit working in and through me, and when you blaspheme that action, that work of the Holy Spirit, you are actually doing something that is unforgivable. And if you remember from our passage, what they were doing is they were calling Jesus Satan. So the Holy Spirit was working through Jesus, and they were like, actually, that's Satan. And Jesus says, that is the type of thing that is unforgivable. Now, I want to be very, very clear here. And I think we should take this very, very seriously, which is not something I'm not very good at doing, right? We should actually take this with, like, the utmost amount of seriousness to say what this is and what this isn't. Now, what we know this is not is denial of Jesus, because all of us, before we come to Jesus, and even after we come to Jesus, deny him all of the time. In fact, Peter, who in the church would be built on, uh, who hopefully has not committed an unforgivable sin, Peter actually denies Jesus three times at his death. He's followed Jesus around for three years. He is the top best disciple, you know, the A-plus number one guy. And here he is rejecting Jesus right at the moment leading up to his death. Surely that is not what blaspheming the Spirit of God means. It also means it's not rejection of Jesus. It's not just denying him, but it's not rejecting him either. There are people, numerous people throughout the history of Christianity who are actively working against Jesus before they come to follow him. Paul is actually the most notable from the New Testament, that here he was killing Christians, saying that they were hypocrites and that they were sinful and they were working against God, and he's actually putting them to death, and then he comes to be a follower of God. Surely he did not blaspheme the Spirit in the way that he was rejecting Jesus. So what does it mean then? I believe that this is a defiant, determined, and unrelenting rejection of the Holy Spirit. That this is someone who would actually say, I know who God is completely. I understand who Jesus is or who the Holy Spirit is acting in and through Jesus. And for that, I am going to be opposed to you. I'm going to be working against you. Now, the reason why this is difficult for us to wrap our minds around is because very often, especially in a sermon like this, we try and find some sort of modern-day parallel, like when do you see this? Uh, and it's, it's difficult, I think, to point out. I remember one time uh, my barber actually was telling me he, like, used to be, like, straight edge and into some, like, you know, kind of crazy stuff and this, like, hardcore kind of crowd in a lot of ways. And he said, we went to this bar and they had, like, an upside-down cross hanging up in it. Do you think that means that, like, uh, Jesus will never forgive me? And I'm like, I don't. That, uh, that seems like a stretch. I don't know. Like, that seems kind of like a petty thing. And, like I said, in those two stories of some of the greatest heroes in the faith, Peter and Paul... And that they were forgiven. So, like, surely it's not just some sort of, like, flippant, dismissive, like, ah, I don't really like Jesus. It's not just sort of some symbol. No, instead, it is a conscious awareness that you are working in opposition to the king of the universe. This makes sense in sort of two lights. One, you can think about it like sort of like a momentary thing. Like, if you just sort of commit yourself to saying, like, I know exactly who God is. I know that God complete or Jesus forgive me of my sins. I know that he's offered all of that to me, and I'm going to be willfully against him and oppose him. You can also think of this as like an unrelenting kind of rejection of God. If you spend your entire life being opposed to God, would he forgive you for that? Like, wouldn't it make sense that that would be unforgivable? C.S. Lewis says, there are only two kinds of people in the end, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. I hope that this is terrifying and comforting at the same time. It's terrifying because of the weight of choice, but it's also comforting to know uh, the God of the universe loves you enough to give you the freedom to actually choose. 
isn't that what love actually is, is giving someone that freedom to actually love you back? Like it couldn't be love if God just forced us all to do it. Instead, God allows us to have our own choices. And so if we want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if we want to be in opposition to God, to know completely who he is and be in opposition and slanderous of him, then God is going to allow us to do it. So the application for today, the big idea is don't do that. Right? Don't do that. The other final thought that I'll leave you with, it's not another definition, is that this should also make us very like conscious and aware of the people that are around us who don't yet know Jesus. I do believe that God gives us this choice freely for ourselves. And he says, hey, you can either choose to follow me or you can choose to not. And then ultimately uh, throughout our lives, we all choose not to, right? Like we all choose to follow our own way. We all choose to sin. We all choose to chase everything else. And so then what Jesus, God does is he still continues to give us that total freedom to make our total free choices. But then he steps in and he says, well, what if I give you Jesus, which is sort of like a free pass for the easy way to say that you follow me. I know you've been unrighteous. I know you've been not following me. I know you've been breaking my law. But I'm actually going to give you a free pass. All you have to do is just say yes and sign up for this idea that Jesus is going to forgive you of all of your sins. So all of the ways that you weren't following God are now going to be cast away and forgiven by the death of Jesus on the cross. And instead, you are going to take on a life that is one that is following God. Not that you do that perfect all the time, but that Jesus did it perfect and you get to take on his life. So do you see the gap here between someone who is consistently rejecting God their entire life and someone who has decided to follow him? There is no gap of righteousness here. It's not like these are good people and these are bad people. There's no gap of, like, you know, you have to be something that's, like, powerful or amazing or important person. No, the gap is, in fact, knowing and accepting the good news of Jesus that he has died on the cross so that you might actually be able to make this choice to say, thy will be done. I say all of that to say that most of the people that you are dealing with in your everyday life, most people that you're living right next to, are not people who are out there actively blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're not the Pharisees marching around saying, no, this isn't Jesus. We hate this guy. He's a demon. No, they are, in fact, people who just don't yet fully understand and realize how much God loves them and that Jesus died on the cross so that they might not be separated with him anymore. Let this for us... <clears throat> be both a warning and an admonition, a challenge that we might share with our neighbors the best and only good news that truly exists in this world, that God loves them, that he sent his son to die on the cross for them, and that he rose on the third day so that we might have life eternal with him. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church, so we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.